Hey, welcome to the Will Smith Podcast, uh, brought to you by jazzyjeffreshprince.com, which has been repping Will Smith and Jazzy Jeff online for 25 years. If you want the latest news about Will Smith and Jazzy Jeff, check out jazzyjeffreshprince.com. Um, we started this podcast in 2005, um, but I'm bringing it back. Um, there's lots of Will Smith news coming up. Um, he's got a brand new book called Will coming out in November. He's dropping new music on his social media channels. Um, so we're going to get into a lot of Will Smith news. Um, with the first episode back, um, we did an interview with Jazzy Jeff while he was in London touring. Asked a lot of fan questions about Will Smith and Jazzy Jeff uh, music and their history. So I'm going to I'm going to play this exclusive interview we did with Jazzy Jeff a few years ago. Check it out. Yo, Jeff, baby, let's keep it old school. Hey, this is Mario Cavani, and uh, I have the distinct honor and privilege of sitting down today with one of the most successful DJs of all time, hip-hop legend and pioneer, the magnificent DJ Jazzy Jeff. Jeff, thank you for taking time out today. Absolutely. I want to take you back old school with my first question. Okay. I want to know uh, what your first memories of music were growing up as a child. First memories of music? Um, my brother played in a soul band. Um, and they used to rehearse in our basement. Um, and I could never go down for the whole rehearsal, but I used to sneak halfway down the basement steps and you know, it would be a, a bass player, two guitar players, a drummer, um, a vocalist, um, and just watching them rehearse you know, for their shows um, was pretty much my first memory of you know, seeing someone kind of do it live you know, and not just listening to it on the radio. Um, and I think that I, you know, no matter how much they tried to make me go to bed, I would always sneak out and just go downstairs. And I think that was just my addiction for music. Cool. Uh, what was the first hip hop record you ever heard? Ooh, first hip hop record I ever heard was probably the Fatback Band, King Tim's the Third. That was the first. Um, that was the first record I heard. I I, I had heard tapes before that. Just uh, that kind of came down from New York, uh, you know, some of the parties that were out before the records came out. What time period is this? Um, early 80s, like maybe 1980, maybe 79, um, that some of the tapes kind of came down. So you kind of heard and, and, and understood a little bit of the culture. They didn't really kind of blow up until it kind of, you know, got on wax and they started playing it. Was there a lot of things? Funneling in from New York to Philly. Um, there was there was some, there was some. I mean, you know, everybody in the know kind of wanted to get those New York tapes. You know, the Grandmaster Flash tapes, Grandmas and Theodore tapes. You know, to just kind of know what was going on. Um, you know, and that's you know that was just kind of like the people who, like I said, the the, the, the people who were in the know, the DJs, or just people who really cared about that. That's before it kind of. You know, became anything to the consumer that you just kind of wanted to know, like what's going on, you know, in New York. There's something a little bit different that we're not getting. And at what point did you realize you wanted to make music yourself? Um, I think you know what I, you know, I started playing music before I started making it. Um, and I think just playing it and kind of wanting um, to change some of the records around, you know, because you know, it, before I started. You know, really kind of getting into the the actual cutting 
you know, I used to just completely mix and it became a thing that I wanted to extend the break on the record. So I would just kind of play it, play it for four bars, play this one for four bars in my earphones and then move the fader over and to just extend it. And I think I kept saying, I want to be able to make it extended. Mm. So that's kind of how the the idea and the concept of you actually making music came in because it was kind of like, I want to do this, but I want to make it different. I want to make this longer. I want to make this. So then you start saying, okay, well, maybe I should just try to make this from scratch yeah. and see what happens. So you knew that you didn't want to just do the party scene, but to actually create your own music yeah. yourself. Yeah, yeah. And was DJing always your thing, or did you ever contemplate becoming an MC at any point? Well, you know, when people started rapping, everybody kind of wanted to get involved in it. I, I just more so, um, I like the idea and the concept of being a person that can control hundreds of people just by the tunes that you play. Um, because I've been in those situations that I've been controlled by, and you know, and that was my infatuation with going to the block party, standing there staring at the DJ, because you're just watching him pick these records and he would play these records and he would say something. And it was just like he was the pod piper. Everybody did what he said, you know, based off of the tunes that he played. And I was just kind of like, I want to be that guy. That guy's got power. Yeah, yeah. He can make those people get up, get yeah. down. And then you know what it is? At, at the end of the day, his job was to make people have a good time. Mm. And it was kind of like, I, I, what can be cooler than that? Totally. And uh, what's the genesis of DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince? Oh, man. Well, I mean, you know, it's just, especially back in the... the the early 80s, it was just the party scene. You know, every it was a it was an MC or, or two on every block, and it was a DJ or two on every block. Um, and we would always have these parties every weekend. You know, whether it be in somebody's basement or in a small ballroom in a small club. Um, and pretty much most of the people kind of knew each other. Um, and that was at a point that I was one of the top guys in the city. Um, and. Will used to be in this crew called the Hypnotic MCs, and you, and we, so everyone kind of knew of each other. We weren't friends, you know, because you would see this person's name on a flyer. You know, all oh, these are the guys from Winfield. Um, so I knew of him, and I had a, you know, it was someone called me at the last minute. You know, someone needs a party done. You know, the funny thing is I laughed because this was pre-cell phone. This is pre. Uh, iPhone, internet, you know, if you needed to get someone, you called them at their house, and if they weren't home, you just never got them. Yeah. And I actually picked up the phone and called the guy that used to MC for me, and he wasn't home. I, you know, it's like, hey, I got a last minute party, and he's not home, there's no answer machine. So I hung up the phone. It wasn't like I could call him from the car. I just left um, and went to the party, and it just so happened to be on Will Street. And he walks in the door, is like, hey, you know, what's going on? Like, you know, and he asked, where's Ice? I called him, couldn't get in touch with him. He's like, hey, you mind if I grab the mic? And, and it was just magical. You know what I mean? It's kind of like we had a lot of fun and it was a lot of chemistry. And this was a Friday night. I had something to do that Saturday. I said, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? He was like, nothing. So he came out that Saturday. I actually had a couple of... Uh, uh, parties that both of them did together um, you know and it just you know it just kind of got to the point that it was like you know the chemistry between Will and I you know were really good you know just you know taking it up 
just from not just the typical, you know, you play music and it's got MCs, you know, we would start working out routines at parties, you know, Girls Ain't Nothing But Trouble was actually a party routine that we would do off of Moments in Love. That it's a great party truck. And, you know, and it was just one of those things that I would watch, you know, when he would tell that story, I would watch hundreds of people just sit there, you know, hanging on to every word that he said. And I, you know, that was another one of those moments that you realize that's that's a level of power that when you can get people to really pay attention, you know, really or be super attentive to what you're saying, you know, you know, that's a gift. So. And how long was it at that point to the moment that you got your record deal? And, oh and man, how did you get your deal? It, you know, it was funny. If that happened so fast, that might have been. Man, that may have been in the fall. Um, it may have been in the fall, 1985. Um, he graduated in 1986. Our record, Girls in Nothing But Trouble, came out on graduation day. Wow. 1986. Like, um, you know, we, we put together the routine of Moments in Love on a four track. Um, and he actually took it to, you know, to the guys who owned the record company. And, you know, he called me and was just like, hey, man, they really want to put it out, you know. And I remember them coming to my mom's house and sitting down explaining to me and my mom and everybody, listen, we want to put out a record and just see. And, you know, and at that point in time, you really thought, you know, I'll be able to show my kids one day that I made a record. Yeah. You know, you never really thought it was going to be a career because you didn't really know anybody who had that kind of career. You know, you pretty much had your life all mapped out in front of you. Um, and it was crazy because Girls in Nothing But Trouble came out. Um, two weeks, you know, I remember the day that it came out, I remember driving in the car with a friend of mine and it came on the radio and you can look out your window into the cars in front of you and see people dancing and you're just kind of like, that's us, that's us. Um, and two and a half weeks later, we were in London doing Top of the Pops. Wow. So it was just kind of like, how did I get here? You know, I haven't been to California yet. <laughs> how did I get to London, you know? And it just, you know, it just happened. You know, it was one of those things, Will was on his way to college and, you know, it was kind of like, okay, we're going to do this this summer. And it was just kind of like, all right, maybe, maybe we'll do it in the fall and see what happens and then do it in the winter and, you know, and that was it. Did Will ever get to college at the end? Never. <laughs> Never. Never. At least he graduated. We, like. we, we, we played a couple of college parties. Ah, right. That's as, as we got. How surreal was it? Uh, when you sold your first million records? Um, that was, you know what, that was a, a that was a, an accomplishment that we, you know, Will and I used to always say, you know, oh my God, if we can, you know, sell a hundred thousand copies, we're, we'll be good. Um, um, it, it happened so fast, you know, a lot of that time was a blur because, you know, you, you go on tour, um, and like I said, you know, pre-internet, you don't know what's going on in your city. You don't know what's going on with your record. You didn't have a way of tracking it. You had to wait for a report to come out that someone either called you on the phone and told you what the report of the record sales. You didn't get everything instant like you do today. And it was just more so being at these shows and, you know, when they announce who's on the show, you would get a certain level of a cheer. And then all of a sudden, it's you know, Will and I are kind of looking at each other like the cheers seem louder, mm. or or am I tripping, you know? And 
you know, the response gets bigger. You know, people are singing the words to your song. You know, like that's the only way that you kind of know that something is really happening. You know, which to me, organically, that felt a lot better because you didn't have these expectations. You just kind of put it out and just watched it grow. So, but that happened in a period of four or five months of, you know, we have a song out to, okay, we, we I think the song is doing pretty well. You know, the song is pretty big. Okay, we just were asked to do Dick Clark's New Year's and, you know, we're asked to do this because we were so out of touch just being on tour. And then someone tells us that, you know, you sold half a million copies and they gave you a plaque and you're kind of like, I've only seen these plaques on TV or, you know, or other people. And then three months later, you get another plaque because now you sold a million records. Like, you know, it was almost like you didn't really have a chance to watch it happen because you were working while it was happening. Mm. So it was it was definitely surreal. Do you think the, uh, the internet movement now is a help or a hindrance, and I'm thinking along the lines of artists who may have, I don't know, 300 million followers on Facebook, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to sell 300 million copies of their record. Well, I mean, I definitely think it's a help. I think, you know, looking at the way that it is now, I, I've always kind of preached the independence. You know, I kind of like the fact that, you know, you did a party you know, and you made some money to be able to buy your turntables or buy your drum machines. Um, and you, you know, you made mixtapes and you passed them out to your friends and 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 then 800,000 people copied the mixtape and they're horrible generation copies, but you held them on because it was, you know, I kind of like that viral effect. Yeah. And to me, I think that's what the internet does today for the, the new producers or the new artists that, um, you don't necessarily need the machine or the record companies to kind of get your message out. I always felt that if, if I made a piece of music, if, if, if these guys are, are, are fans of what I'm, I'm doing, I never liked the fact that somebody could have stopped my fan from getting my music right. based off of their personal opinion. Mm -hmm. You know, not saying that I know, but it's kind of like the relationship is between me and them. Mm -hmm. I just had to go through the record company, through the radio station to get to them. But now that I'm there, why can't I have a one-on-one -on -one interaction with my families? You know, that it always has to go through you, that you have to say, I think you should do something different. You know, I think you, you didn't tell me what to do the first time, but you want to tell me that I need to change my music or do something that people are gonna, you know, and that I never really liked, so I think, you know, I, I definitely applaud the internet for being a vehicle um, that you can pretty much have that one-on-one -on -one relationship. Now, the problem is that is the vehicle for the talented as well as the not-so-talented. So it's very, very crowded there. Um, you know, but you know, I, I, I just love the fact that you can have your one-on-one -on -one interaction with your people and not necessarily have to go through the middleman. Who inspired you in hip-hop before you got started and who inspires you in hip-hop today? Well, the funny thing is I didn't really have inspiration in hip-hop, especially being there before hip-hop. You know, like my early, my early days of DJing were me playing funk and soul records. 
you know, that it was pre-hip-hop. So, you know, I think I was blessed to kind of be there from the inception of hip-hop to kind of get it. So you didn't really have that kind of inspiration. Your inspiration was more musical. Um, and then, you know, being on the ground floor when hip-hop comes. Um, and, and today, it's just kind of like, I am, a, I am the biggest music fan I know. Um, I am the most confused music fan I know. <laughs> In what respect? Um, well, because I like so much stuff. You know, a, a lot of times, you know, people will say, you know, well, what's your favorite record out? And I tell people, I have never, I don't think I've ever answered that question. I think that when you ask me anything about my favorite music or songs, my brain automatically goes into scramble mode because I'm trying to decipher through 500,000 songs. Totally. And I can, you know, it's, it's, you know, today will be most deaf, tomorrow, you know, an hour from now will be Robert But Blasters, I mean, is, you know. is, there, is there a particular song played at your wedding? Is there a song that you've nope. got picked for your funeral? Nope. Is there something that stands nope. out and it's like, that is Not nothing at all? Nothing. Nothing. Okay, really here's another nothing. question. Do you have any guilty pleasures, music-wise? Oh, I have a ton of guilty pleasures. Like, I was the person that, I was in love with Britney Spears. And yeah. All of them, like, I, you know, and I don't even really consider that a guilty <laughs> pleasure. Like, it's it's a lot of stuff that I like. I, I, one of the most favorite things that I like to listen to is smooth jazz. You know, and, you know, pe like, people would automatically think that, you know, I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to throw on the, the banging this hip-hop song in the world it's just kind of depending on what you feel i'm i'm somebody that i don't really listen to 10 things at one time if, if i get an album that i like i'll play that album for six months mm. is that where the name jazzy jeff came from then? no no that was you know that that came out of me being cheap <laughs> um because my name used to be Mixmaster jeff and you used to go to this store called the balcony and you would pay for the letters, the iron-on letters on your shirt. Right. Mixmaster Jeff was really expensive. <laughs> I could imagine. It was really exactly. expensive. So it was kind of like, so you know. It's like yeah. nine letters for yeah. Mixmaster. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Jazz Jeff it was. I would have said, it would have been Jazzy J if I was really cheap. <laughs> and the rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you're still constantly touring the world. Uh, you, you're constantly bouncing from continent to continent. Are there any particular countries that stand out as some of your favorites to visit? No, I like them all. I don't, I don't, I haven't really, thank God, I haven't really gone someplace that I really, really didn't like. Um, and you really get a kick out of going places that you haven't been. Um, you know, because it's, it, it's, 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 a, it's a whole new experience. You know, it's a whole new experience with people, you know, exposing people to music um, and just, you know, giving the music to people in different ways. You know, uh, I, I I always try to play like my job depends on it. You know, it's it is if you always if you want to be able to keep your job, you have to make your job irreplaceable. Um, so I don't want to ever play like anybody can just do that. Mm. So I have to do something i have to do enough to make you say the only way that i'm going to get that is if i go and see someone like him or see him um and i think that's the approach so it's exciting to do that for people who've never seen it 
you know, it's 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 also weird because it's a big giant cycle that you know you find yourself doing things, you know, that you've done 20, 25 years ago and got the same impact, and it's like it goes all the way back around. It's kind of like you can do it now and get the same impact because it's a whole new group of people that have never seen. It. You know, there are people that. You know, look at two turntables in the mixer, like, what's that? Like, oh my God, that was amazing. Did you see what he just did with that? Or, you know, or, and not just that. It's not even the, the did you see what he just did. It's more, did you hear? Mm. Because, you know, I realized that if I play for, if I if I play an event for 10,000 people, maybe 250 can see me. So I'm not playing for the 250 that can see me. I'm playing for the, you know, 9,500 and so many that can only hear you. Mm. When we were at uh, the Plan B venue last night, and the way that the layout is with the DJ box, it was very difficult for anyone that wasn't in the front row to be able to see, see. you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter though. Yeah. Once, you, once you're there and you can hear the way that you mix it up, uh, the Super Mario Brothers thing, yeah. the OPP, or, you know, the way that you... Um, as uh, a Royster 5 9 with the tick tick. Yeah. Magnificent, magnificent, magnificent. When is the third magnificent album coming out? Um, hopefully, hopefully, when I finish this studio, um, I, being 100% honest, sometimes, um, as much as I preach it, I can actually fall into um, the same traps that I try to preach people out of. Um, and then there's times that I, you know, I'll fall into that trap of, you know, should I do another Magnificent album? Do people really want to hear another Magnificent album? Yes, Is it they important do. <laughs> to do another Magnificent And you know what, and I know, but you know, like I said, sometimes you'll fall into that same, totally. you know, that same kind of trap. Um, you know, that you just kind of push yourself out. That is kind of like, you know what, it's, as long as you have people out there that enjoy what you do and want to hear what you do, you know, you should always put out music. Um, and then it's and it's you know and then putting out music for the sake of getting it out, um, you know, is one of the things that I've always kind of preached that I do try to take my own advice that every piece of music that you put out doesn't have to be sold. You know, if you know, I, I just believe that if I'm gonna make 500 pieces of music in my lifetime, I want 500 pieces of music to be out. I want them to have touch somebody, I want them to have made some kind of impact. And it's selfish to say the only way that they can make an impact is if someone pays for it. Right. You know, so you kind of have to understand that, you know, out of this 500, 200 might be sold, 250 might be given away, you know, 50 might just be sitting on the shelf that after yeah, I'm gone, does. somebody, you know, is going to get out. And I kind of think, you know, that's what... Uh, 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 somebody like Jay Dilla did and that's what he wanted knowing that he wasn't going to always be here mm. you know that's why you know guys like Questlove and House Shoes have almost been curators in making sure that the public gets these beats that he made because it's kind of like this is a level of genius that you know you're not going to get and I think he kind of wants everyone to get it like you know and that's and that's it just you know knowing that I need to get this out by any means necessary. Do you think there's some kind of element of longevity or immortality to that where you can turn around and say, I've got a vault full of music and I know it's, 
it's slamming. But I also know that when my time is up, that vault's going to get unlocked and the people will get it. I mean, I'm thinking maybe of Tupac and how many records has he sold since he's passed? Probably well, I, more yeah, than you know, but I think Tupac was an artist that didn't need a reason to make music. You know, Tupac was somebody that, you know, it, it, it's almost kind of like if I if I if I hear something and it sparks any kind of emotion, I'm going to write what that emotion did and I'm just going to record it. And how it comes out, it, it comes out, you know. And to me, that's, you know, that's a true artist that, you know, just get everything out of the way, whatever you feel comes out. Because, you know, you have artists that, you know, will kind of go into this whole thing, well, I'm not really feeling the beat, or I'm not really feeling, it's kind of like, it makes you feel something, just write what it makes you feel. And I think that's the thing that I've missed, you know, with my relationship with Will, that it was kind of like, whatever I did, spark something to make him do something you know it was never a shutdown it was never a oh i'm just not feeling that you know there were records that he did and i did that we didn't really like but we got them out because there were times that it was like oh my god i absolutely hated this record and when it's done oh this is the best thing i've ever done that you have really any examples of uh, one of those um, i mean it's i hated parents just don't understand yeah. i hated parents I liked the beat, you know, it was just kind of like, ah, oh, man, it was just something about this that it was kind of like, ah, oh, this is all right, you know, it's all right, but this is just going to be an album cut, and then someone was like, ah, oh, we want to make this the first single, you're like, are you kidding me, you know, you know, you kind of wanted something that you felt a little bit more passionate about, but it, it, you didn't stand in its way, you know, and that's the whole thing, it's kind of like, to me, as an artist, you don't have to like or love everything that you do. It doesn't mean that it's not good. You know, it doesn't mean that it's not good. And I think true artists can figure out a way to get out of the way of themselves yeah. to let their art come out, which is very hard. It's really hard because it's wow. kind of like making somebody, you know, I don't know a chef that might cook something. You know what? I, I don't eat eggs or cheese. Mm. But I make incredible cheese eggs. <laughs> I don't know the one from what you're saying. It seems to me there's what six, seven billion people on the face of the planet. Everyone's unique. Everyone's into different things. Everyone likes different music, different styles. You might put out a record that you don't like, but that's still going to touch a hell of a lot of people. How does that make you feel? That I mean, that's that's great. That's great. You you know you you don't know. You don't, you really, you really don't know. I, I, when I was coming up in Philly as a DJ, um, it used to be so many things that I would do in my mom's basement that I would never do out. That, you know, my close friends that would come over like, oh my God, that was incredible, why don't you do it? And I never would do it out because you would always wonder what someone's gonna say. And I remember, I remember being at a party in Philly and Lady B, who was probably the biggest hip hop radio host in the country, was at the party and I was pushed to do a, a DJ routine that I never did out in public. And I did it and everybody's mouth hit the floor and she got on the radio the next day and talked about it. Awesome. And that started the whole thing. It's I hated 
I'm not gonna say I hate it. I was embarrassed by a touch of jazz when I made it. Seriously. Like, we were in a hotel room with Eric being Rock him after a show, and I had a radio in the room playing, and I had a cassette playing, and I walked into the bathroom and got into the bathroom and realized that a touch of jazz was coming on next and tried to hurry out of the bathroom to cut it off and it came on and Eric B said, what is this? This is amazing. And I literally was like, <laughs> and I let it play. And it was, you know, he was like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is crazy. And that's what made me put it out. See, when Eric B gives you a compliment like that, you gotta take notes. Especially with that straight face he got. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you have to. Uh, we have a few questions from the DJ Jazzy Jeff at the Fresh Prince Forum. Okay, then question number one is uh, from Jim from New Jersey who asks, with it being the 20th anniversary of Code Red, what do you remember about making that classic album? <laughs> um, that was, you know what, that album was a little bit rough to make because um, I had started to feel that we didn't really have the support of the record company around that time, um, which was very weird, you know, just more so being in, you know, I remember when we started on job, uh, them being at, at 89th and Lexington in this little apartment building, and then to watch them move into this big giant high rise and become this super massive label that you kind of really helped, you know, put on the map. And then we had gotten to a point that, you know, you they would have us wait in the lobby to walk in, to go talk to the people, you know, and to just watch that kind of transformation. Um, it was a little, it was a little rough, um, you know, because, like I said, you know, the, the the business has a creative side and has a business side, and a lot of times the creative and the business side start to clash, um, and we had a lot of clashes with Code Red, you know, around that time of what we were trying to do and what the record company kind of wanted you to do. Um, so you know, are you happy with the record and how it? Well, yeah, you know what's funny? Code Red was our biggest international record, you know, at that time. Um, and we appreciated that because we opened doors, you know, that I don't know how much the record company really appreciated that because they kind of really wanted that commercial U.S. success and the plaques and all the rest of that. But, you know, I think Code Red was the one that kind of, you know, put us on the map around the world. Uh, the next question is from Big Ted, who asks, if you weren't a DJ, what would you be doing as a profession? I'd probably be a, a cook. Okay, I'd you been in the kitchen? A, uh, I'd like to think so. Yeah? I would probably be a cook. To me, cooking and DJing uh, uh, have a lot of similarities, and, and, and just, you know, making dishes, you know, it's, it's, you know, taking different ingredients and putting them together to see what works, and then sometimes using common sense to see what works. Um, and then it's sometimes not using common sense and going out on the limb, kind of like Super Mario Brothers and OPP, to you know that, to, to create something that that um, you know kind of works. But it's, you know, I would definitely probably be a cook. Have you got any uh, key Jazzy Jeff dishes that just? I have. Traveling I have anything? a couple. You know, we're in the process of working out, doing this food truck and some. Some good stuff that we, uh, you know, me, my wife, and a couple other people are brainstorming about trying to get 
like if you guys are ever in the area and you get a chance to come for like we cook every night yeah and we cook for people every night sounds like a good plan to me yeah just, definitely you know, like we we like that cool okay there jumping jack aj asks what would jeff from 2013 tell jeff from 1986. whoo that's a great question um Um, probably, uh, probably to just stay the course, you know, that it, you know, it, it's knowing that everything doesn't always look like it's going to turn out okay. Um, and just, you know, it, it, it's, there, there have been a lot of times that I've made decisions that I wasn't the most popular person in making the decision at the time. Um, and it pays off. Um, later on, I think um, knowing that sometimes your rewards don't come when you want them to come. Mm -hmm. You know, it, 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 you know that's one of the biggest I think life lessons. You know that I learned that everything that you want doesn't come when you want it. Um, you know, and, and and it's more about timing than anything. You know, it's you can meet your soulmate, but if both of you are four, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, that, you know, timing has almost just as much to do with the, the situation. Um, and I just think, you know, just, you know, having those times and those moments when everyone thinks that you're crazy, you know, and then you turn out to be this super genius later on because, you know, you kind of made a decision to do something before everyone else. Um, and just feeling comfortable and confident and knowing, you know, that if you believe it, just... You know, stay true. Have patience. Yep. Stay the course. That's it. Go for it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, uh, Velasco, and I apologise if I've not pronounced your name correctly, asks, are there any plans to collaborate with Will in the near future? You know what, we talk about it every time we get together. Um, every time we get together, every time there's a wedding or there's a movie premiere and he gets on stage and we do something, he walks off stage and he looks at me and he says, you know we can still do this, right? And I just shake my head because I'm kind of like, I know, I still do it. I'm with <laughs> you, you know. Um, and it's just hard because, you know, like I said, it's with my schedule and him being one of the biggest movie stars in the world, it's, once again, it's about the time. You know, it's about the time. It's about... You know, and so many times I'm just kind of like, if I can just get him on stage in the right setting one time, it's going to start the wheels, you know, just move. And it's not that he doesn't want to do it. It's, you know, it, it's, we've, we've gone from being parents just don't understand to the parents that just don't understand. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and trying to balance all of that. Um, I always have said that I believe it'll happen. It just has to be the right time. So the um, the set that you did on the Graham Norton show, mm -hmm. was that just really good timing? You know what? He called me and said, hey, I want to know if you can come to London tomorrow. I have an idea of something that I want to do. I was in Vegas. I said, okay. I jumped on a plane and flew. Well, I was in LA. And I jumped on a plane and flew. We walked into a room and it was funny because I took um, Ferno with me. And I think he was just amazed at how the entire performance was
planned out at a table. We were eating sandwiches and he was like, yeah, you know, I want to do something. And I was like, okay, you know, I was like, well, you know what? How about if we do this and then come right out of here with this and do this. And like, oh man, it's cool. And then Alfonso will come out, all right, man, cool. It was almost like a huddle. And we clapped, break, we went and one shot did it at rehearsal. Um, and we always would kind of hold back a little bit at rehearsal and, you know, did it. And I jumped on a plane and flew back the next morning and landed and to a hundred thousand tweets of the Graham Norton show. Um, but I mean, you know, and that, all that does is that brings, you know, that brings the aggravation of if we can do it this easy, yep. what are we waiting for? And then, but you know, like I said, I understand, you know, it's kind of like, you can't really put a $25 million movie on hold you know, or put a tour on hold or, you know, to just kind of do it. It's, it's just the time. Can he not put it in his diary and in advance and say, right, two, summer of 2015, we're going back into the studio or we're going on tour for a couple of months and I'm just not going to book any movies for that time. Well, you know what it is? It's the same thing like when we were talking about earlier, like shutting the studio down and just having to get yourself mentally ready. I don't know if it's a thing that we can just book studio time and just walk in. Mm. You know, I kind of think it, 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 and for me, it probably be a whole lot easier because I lived this part, you know, more than he does. But it, it's, it's a, it's a deprogramming. You know, it's, you know, I would always say that it's not the easiest thing in the world to go from the studio to going on the road to go back in the studio. You know, I have to take a little bit of time to get myself mentally prepared to go on the road to know that my records and the mixes and all the rest of this stuff is what I really need to focus on. And it's the same thing, when I want to go in the studio and make a project, I may not touch my turntables, you know. It's very hard because I think I put 100% into both that you can't put 100% into both at the same time. That I kind of need to back off of this and kind of do it. And I think it's the same thing with him, you know, with the acting, you know, at least both of mine are music related, so it might be a little bit tougher for him yeah. to just, you know, because we might need that week of just getting him up to speed. Are you afraid, maybe the wrong word to use, but are you afraid at all that after all this time you get back into the studio nope. or Never. no? Never. I mean, like I said, you know, the, the, the Graham Norton, there, there are. To me, there are uh, inequalities with Will and I that will never go anywhere. We can, he can show up and in 15 minutes we can go on stage and do an entire show off of iSignals. And anyone around me that sees that has, does not understand how we can do that still. Like I know the eye or the hand signal that I want to do two verses. I want to do one verse. I know the eye and the hand signals of what songs he wants to do. I know when he wants me to do something. I know when he wants me to extend something. You know, and that comes for 25 years of being on the road and just performing with somebody that you have that level of chemistry with. So I, that, the chemistry part will never be an issue. Will never be an issue. Okay, do you have uh, a final statement to say to the fans, especially those guys on the JJFP forums? Um, I mean, you really can't really express the appreciation. It was, you know, I met Tim a, a long while ago. Um, and, it, and it was really interesting that the first time that I went to the, the, the JJFP forum, I realized that he had compiled more information about me than I had on myself. Wow. Um, 
and and actually reached out and was just kind of like, yo, you know, thank you because being in it, sometimes when you're doing this kind of stuff, you don't think about the longevity. You don't think about how important keeping this mix that you did or this record that you did, you know, because it's all moving so fast. Um, there, uh, there are hundreds of things that I don't have that I really wish that I do, that I thank God for the internet because most of the time there's someone out there that kept it. Um, and you really get a chance to kind of, you know, sit and almost see everything that you've done. Um, but to realize that it was a whole group of people that really enjoyed what you did so much that, they, you know, that they kind of kept, you know, that, you know, was one of the things that, you know, and, and it was ironic because not too long after that, um, Will and I did something in Australia and I actually invited Tim to come out to meet Will and when I kind of explained it to Will, because I knew Will was going to get it in two seconds, mm -hmm. that when I showed him, he was just sitting there scratching his head like, wow, we did that? I don't remember that. Wow, we did, you know, and just to kind of have that kind of association with people. Um, and then it was great because it was almost at the, 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 the boom of the social media and the, the, the internet explosion that you were able to pull other people in, you know, and just take them on this journey. You know, I think a lot of, you know, that is what birthed Final Destination, is what birthed, you know, just, you know, listen, you know, if, if, if people are asking how is it to tour the world, why not take them with you? You know, and you almost feel like you got a group of friends that go with you wherever you go. You know, that's I think that's a part of, you know, the statement that I said yesterday that, you know, it's it's weird that when I land in London or I land in certain places, you have a sense of home because you feel a level of comfort because you know people. You know, you know people there. You know, you get to see people. You know, you do these shows and get to meet you know, these guys or see these guys consistently at a show kind of makes you feel a level of comfort that it's like, I'm not, you know, I'm not playing for for people who are just coming in. You're playing for friends, you know, that you've established that kind of friendship. So more than anything, you just have that level of appreciation and love for the people that, you know, have it for you. Um, and then you sit down and you kind of talk to them because, you know, they're the ones that, you know, sometimes they have a little bit more insight, you know, they tell you what they want to see, what they want to hear, and, you know, I think the smart person kind of sits back and listens to the people, um, and, you know, and just trying to mesh it all together. Well, we as fans appreciate the music that you've made over the years and continue to create, and uh, thank you so much for taking this time. Absolutely. For this interview, it's been an incredible honor. Thank, thank you very you. much. I appreciate it. Thank you.